couple of announcements uh, to go over tonight. First of all, for those who are either listening by you know live streaming or whatever the circumstances may be, those of you who are here that have or know of the, some of the uh, uh, teenagers in the cl- in, in the church. They're going to have an event next, uh, this coming Sunday evening. I can't believe it's already the, what's today, 17th, 18th, already? I don't know where yesterday went. So this Sunday evening, 5.30 to 8.30 at Grace Bible Church, they need to bring $5 for food, their Bible, notebook, pen, and let uh, Jeff Phipps know, RSVP to Jeff, no later than uh, uh, Saturday. And to bring friends, right? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, the other thing that's c- coming along that I just found out about this last night, or this morning, rather, and sent out uh, uh, an email announcement this morning and then a corrective later this afternoon. And so you need to get this right. This morning I said go to the website and sign up if you want to go, but I nixed that this afternoon. I said if we're going to go, just let me know, and I need to know and this is directed to the men of the church, and that includes your sons or grandsons, uh, men or those who want to be men, as long as they fit the, as long as they fit the right gender. Okay, you always have to qualify things like that today. And uh, but this event is going to be at First Baptist Church, and they have invited uh, this man. Louis Zamperini to speak to their men's group, and they've opened this up to anyone uh, who wishes to come. And so I thought this would be a tremendous opportunity for um, for us to uh, perhaps get together with sort of a father and son thing, go somewhere uh, about five o'clock and have dinner, and then go to First Baptist for, for, to hear him on uh, on Sunday evening. He is quite an individual. I was not aware of who he was or the book until just recently, and for my birthday, Dan Ingram gave me a copy of the book Unbroken, and this is his story. He was a, uh, uh, he ran in the Olympics, in the uh, Berlin Olympics in 36, I believe. He uh, also, uh, then he entered the Air Force during World War II. He was a bombardier in a bomber that was shot down and uh, ditched in the uh, Pacific, and then he was captured and spent some time in a POW camp. Came back, I understand he had a lot of personal problems and other things, and at some point in his life he became a, a believer and uh, listening to Billy Graham. And so he is anybody, who, as Jeff pointed out earlier, anybody who is going on the speaking tour at 94, uh, maybe we ought to go hear him. This guy is... <laughs> This guy's great. So I have uh, I have reserved a block of 30 tickets. We can get more, but um, uh, 30 tickets. The tickets are $15 a piece, and I reserved a block of 30 with the guy over at uh, at First Baptist. And I need to know on Monday morning what the count is. So this is a real quick deal, and uh, we we uh, don't need to just kind of wait and say, well, what am I going to do next week? I think this is going to be a, a, a worthwhile evening to go hear him. So uh, put that on your calendar and let those let men know who you think might be interested. So this will be a this will be a good event, and that means bring bring some of the. Teens, or I think this is a great thing to bring some of the boys out to hear somebody like this, and not too many people they can 
they can uh, hear or see today uh, like that. And then the other announcement is that we're um, putting together boxes to send over to Jim Myers, and those will be out in the um, uh, backpack here for you to sign up or to put uh, bring things to fill them up. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful to be here this evening. We're thankful for your grace. We're thankful that in your grace and on the basis of your your character, your righteousness, your justice, and your love, that you have provided a perfect salvation for us, a salvation that is not dependent in any way upon who we are or what we do, but is dependent completely and totally upon what Jesus Christ did when he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And that the only issue, therefore, is faith in Christ. It's not sin. It's not failure. It's not whatever it may be that we're, we've done in the past. The issue is simply, what do we think about Jesus Christ? Do we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if so, we have eternal life. Father, as we uh, come to understand more fully what this means in our study of Romans, we pray that you would help us to understand uh, what Paul is saying and work our way through these verses that uh, it may be very clear to us what is said and what is not said. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and this is one of the uh, uh, most important chapters in relation to understanding the nature of man and why the human race is under condemnation from God. Theologically, the term that is used to describe this is total depravity. But this is a term that is often misunderstood by many people. A total depravity doesn't mean that everybody is as bad as they could be. Uh, The term total means that every aspect of our being has been affected by the corruption of sin so that there is nothing that we can do that merits the righteousness, uh, 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 merits the approval of God, merits the uh, judicial blessing of God. It does not mean what is, it is often presented to mean, especially within Calvinist or Reformed circles, total inability. Under the definition of total inability, what uh, Reformed theology, which is the more correct term to refer to Calvinism, what Reformed theology describes as that, that man is completely incapable, not just of doing anything to please God, that brings in the idea of merit. And not only do they deny that man can do anything to please God, which we would agree with, but man cannot even or does not even have an inclination towards God. He can't even exercise 
a positive volition towards God because in a strict Calvinist system, positive volition or volition itself is meritorious. And in their system, faith is meritorious. That's why in a strict Reformed theology, faith is taken to be a gift. And they will go to passages like Ephesians 2.8.9, uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And they'll take the it there to refer to faith. The problem is the it is a neuter pronoun, and pistis is a feminine noun. And so you don't refer to a feminine noun with a... Uh, neuter uh, pronoun. It doesn't fit. Trouble is, the difficulty in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is each of those nouns are feminine and the it there that is, uh, it is the gift of God refers to the whole concept of a salvation by grace through faith. That is the gift of God. It is God's gift of giving us a plan of salvation that is on the basis of of, of grace through faith and not of works. So in Calvinism, God gives the faith so that a person's, even a person's positive volition is meritorious. Everything is meritorious. They have no concept of something that is non-meritorious. And so a person then becomes saved because they have the right kind of faith. And that means that in, strictly in their system that you can have a faith in Jesus as your Savior that is non-saving. That, and that just sounds absurd. How can I believe in Jesus? How do I know if I have saving faith or not? Well, the only way you can know is if you have works. And so it's a backdoor introduction of a works system, that if you have the right kind of works that demonstrate that you have been truly regenerated and that you are a Christian, then then you have you were given the right kind of faith. But if you don't have the right kind of works, if you're uh, still living in a variety of sins, then obviously you didn't have the right kind of faith. You just had a human-based faith in Jesus, but it wasn't the uh, kind of faith that would save. So it's, these systems of theology are integrated they are logically uh, interconnected and logically developed and so there really is although there are people who will deny this within these various camps but there really is a logically consistent correlation between all of the five points of calvinism for those who don't remember the five points of calvinism are uh, indicated in the um, acronym tulip T for total uh, inability, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, Christ died only for the elect. That's a limited, I mean, unconditional election is God just elects. It's really more of an arbitrary election. Um, The I is for irresistible grace, and the P is for perseverance. And although there are there is a tradition and stream within the history of Calvinism, and Lewisbury Chafer was this way, where the concept of perseverance was understood to be limited to just eternal security. It was Christ who persevered to keep us saved. Uh, for the most part within Calvinism, is, and, and very much so today, the P is viewed 
in, in, under the idea that you and I need to be steadfast and we need to persevere in good works. And if we don't, then we didn't really have the right kind of faith. So strictly in this, and we refer to this as lordship salvation, and strictly within a lordship salvation framework, uh, you never really know for sure that you are saved, that you will go to heaven when you die because you might not have the right kind of faith. And at some point in the future, you may... Uh, backslide, you may turn, you rebel against God, turn your back on God, and if you did, then oops, you didn't have the right kind of faith and you're not saved. And there's a story I've told before that is a sad story, but a true story, of James Montgomery Boyce, who was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in, uh, in Philadelphia, and wrote many, many commentaries, and he was on the radio and well-known. Uh, that's the church, uh, I believe, where... Uh, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse was the pastor in an earlier generation. And when uh, uh, Boyce was on his deathbed, another well-known Calvinist by the name of, uh, no, I'm going to forget his name, um, anyway, uh, who has uh, Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul, uh, Ligonier Ministries, uh, was having a conference at the time when uh, they expected uh, Boyce to die. And every night he began his meetings by saying, we need to pray for our dear brother, uh, Boyce, and pray that he will not give up the faith so that we know that when he dies, he dies in the faith and that he persevered to the end. So that's, that's, that's just legalism. That is, that is saying that you're, you're really saved by what you do. And it's a backdoor introduction of, of works. And uh, Lordship Salvation has been very, become very, very, very popular among evangelicals in the last, uh, last generation. Actually, it's always been there just sort of under the covers, as it were. Whenever you hear a Christian, somebody comment, they look at somebody and see them do something, they say, and I thought they were a Christian. You know, the subtext is, is if they were really a Christian, they wouldn't do that. So that's uh, uh, the thing is, if they're a legalistic Christian, they wouldn't do that. Some of you didn't get that. So in Romans 3, Paul nails this. In these, in these uh, verses in Romans 3, down through verse 18, he, he is bringing to a conclusion what he has been arguing for, what he's been building his case for since uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18. That introduced the concept of the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God, some people think, and in some New Testament books, for example, in uh, uh, in First Thess- Thessalonians, wrath is is future. It's still within human history, but it speaks of the tribulation. But in Romans, the term wrath of God is not a future event in terms of tribulation, but it is the judgment of God within human history, within time. And it can be either individual or it can be in terms of a group, a group of people, a, a nation. Uh, but the wrath of God is the, is the outworking of God's judgment. And it can be either active or passive. Now, what do I mean by active? I mean God brings active, specific discipline and judgment on a group, on a nation, or on um, uh, on an individual. For example, when God brought the Babylonians, the Chaldeans in the uh, Neo-Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar, 
to uh, the kingdom of Judah. Uh, those three times at the end of that first temple period, that is God's active judgment. That is the wrath of God on Judah, on Israel. That is God actively doing something. But when you look at what was going on within the history of the kingdom of Judah during the uh, most the two or three hundred years prior to that, as they went into spiritual decline and spiritual degeneration, they experienced a host of other problems, economic problems. They had uh, problems with drought. They had problems in, with military defeats. They had problems with corrupt leadership. All of that was the sort of the natural consequence of sinful decisions. That's God's passive wrath. And I didn't make that kind of a distinction when we went through uh, Romans 1. But a lot of the discipline that God brings into people's lives is simply allowing the natural consequences of their sinful positions to work itself out so that they experience the bad consequences from bad decisions. So in Romans 1.18, Paul begins to lay down this concept that the wrath of God is revealed ongoing through history from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that relative clause defines men. He, he's not revealing it against those who aren't suppressing truth. And those who are believers and who are growing are not considered truth suppressors. But those who are rejecting God's revelation are truth, are truth suppressors. And then in the first part of, uh, in the rest of Romans 1 and the first part of Romans 2, he shows that the, the wrath of God works itself out on those who are licentious and those who are immoral. And then in the first part of chapter 2, God's wrath on those that are moral. Both fail to live up to his, his, uh, uh, his righteous standard. And then starting in 2.17, he shows that God's righteousness also condemns the Jews because even though they were given great privilege and great revelation, nevertheless, they still violated the, uh, the Torah, the, the law of Moses. And then he, as we come to chapter 3, verse 1, he, raises, he introduces this with a series of, of uh, rhetorical questions. And the, the, these questions are designed to get his audience to think about the implications of what he has said. And so he uses uh, these rhetorical questions to get people to stop and think and not just read through the words, but to stop and think, and as well as presenting the, uh, the objections that may be raised by a rabbi or by an observant Jew who thinks that by uh, his observance of the Torah, he would gain favor with God. And so having uh, dealt with the issue of circumcision, which was a critical uh, point of conflict in the first century as we studied, Paul then begins with the rhetorical question, well, what advantage then has the Jew? This is in the sense of statement or objection that someone who is an observant Jew might ask. Well, if what you're saying is true then, what's so great about being Jewish? What's so great about Israel? Why should it matter if it doesn't matter uh, whether we're circumcised or not, but what matters is the orientation of the heart? Then what advantage does the Jew have, and what is the profit of circumcision? These are the first two of ten 
rhetorical questions that are stated in this section. Last time I only had six up because we were just looking at about the first five verses and I didn't even get as far as the fifth verse. So he advances his argument here in the first nine verses through these ten rhetorical questions. What advantage has the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? And then for others, he would say, well, what, uh, what if some, that is among the Jews, did not believe? And then the follow-up to that question is, would their belief invalidate the faithfulness of God? And then he asks, as he does rhetorically, well, what shall we say? If this is true, then what then are we led to as a natural conclusion? And that would then raise the next question, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Verse 5. For, and then he raises another question. Well, then how would God judge the world if this previous assumption were true? And uh, the eighth question in verse 7, if the truth of God increased through my lie, why am I judged a sinner? This is another question put in the mouth of an objector. In verse 7, and then uh, also what the objector may say, let us, uh, why, why not say, let us do evil that good may come in verse 8. And then I put the last two questions together because they, they flow together in verse 9. Uh, Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? I mean, are Jews better than Gentiles? So that advances his argument. Well, last time we got through about the first three or four verses, so we'll just quickly hit this again. The first question is, what advantage has the Jew, and what's the profit of circumcision? And his answer is, the Jews have a place in the blessing of God because God gave them revelation. God spoke to them through the prophets. God blessed them in numerous ways. He gave them the land. He gave them the covenants. Those belong to the Jewish people. They are unconditional. They're eternal. And God will never forsake those. And that is blessing. But none of those covenants and none of those promises guaranteed that they would have uh, an eternal destiny in heaven. They just gave them more information in time than anybody else on the planet. So they were given the word of God or the oracles of God. And then he steps it up in verse 3 and puts um, another question in the mouth of the objector, the Jewish person who would be challenging what he has said. And he says, and so according to this objector, they would say, well, what if some did not believe? What if they didn't all believe? What if there were some who did, who did not believe? And then the follow-up to that would be, would their unbelief invalidate uh, the faithfulness of God or make it without effect? And I pointed out last time uh, there's a significant uh, significance to the words that are used. In the first question, Paul is saying, what about those if, if some did not believe? That is, if they did not trust God. Just because they were Jewish doesn't mean they would trust God. The uh, Most of the Exodus generation did not trust God. They did initially, but later they did not. They were uh, rebellious in the wilderness. They grumbled. They complained. And so they did not believe. And the verb there is apostevo in the Greek, uh, which simply means that they did not believe. The A at the beginning of that 
I didn't get that into the English translation. Uh, transliteration should be apistevo, uh, indicates a negative. They did not believe. But then, oh, I don't know what I was looking, getting at there. You had the two words. Let me back up. You had the two words, not believed, it's apistevo. And again, here, their unbelief is um, apistia, apistia, which is the noun form. Now, apistia, which is translates unbelief, this is the noun, not believe is the verb. Unbelief here, apistia, which is our word here, is contrasted with piston, which is the noun form that is here. Pistis is the uh, nominative, piston is the accusative, which is found here. The faithfulness of God. So the contrast is apist. Apistis versus pistis. So they have here. It's trans, the apistis is translated unbelief, but its contrast is faithfulness. That's comparing apples and oranges. They either both need to be translated as unbelief and belief, or they need to be translated as unfaithfulness and faithfulness. You have to have the same idea present in both of those. Uh, both of those nouns, and I pointed out last time that the idea here is with their unfaithfulness to the promises of God, the Word of God, uh, render the faithfulness of God uh, void. Would it invalidate it? And that word is katargeo, the word which means to abolish or nullify. And the, the what Paul is getting at is that God is faithful. That is his character. Uh, this is emphasized again and again in the, uh, in the Old Testament that the faithfulness of God is what undergirds all of his promises in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there is a close connection between the idea of truth and the idea of faithfulness. Uh, truth and faithfulness are very close concepts in the Old Testament and in fact, you have uh, one word group uh, based on amen, which means to believe, but it can also mean steadfastness in some uh, forms that it occurs in in the uh, in the Old Testament. So these are considered uh, opposite sides of the same coin. God is faithful because He is true, because He does not lie, and He is true to His word. So that means He is faithful uh, to his word. And so as I pointed out last time, Paul makes a switch here or makes a certain uh, shift from the idea of faithfulness in verse 3 to the idea of God being true in verse 4. These are very close closely connected ideas. And then he will quote from Psalm 51.4 at the end of verse 4, which says that you, addressing God, might be justified. And there we bring in the idea of dikaios, rather, which is, or dikaios is the verb, which has the idea of God's perfect standard. So truth, faithfulness, and righteousness, those three elements, or those three attributes of God are connected together here. Truth, faithfulness, and uh, righteousness are are connected. So, 
when he raises this rhetorical question in, um, in verse 3, will their unbelief make, uh, make their, or will their unfaithfulness make the faithfulness of God null and void? The answer is certainly not. A very strong negative, meganoida, twice in this section. Um, Paul uses this term, and he does it again in verse 6. It is a strong negative. Certainly not, of course not, indicating this is a ridiculous conclusion. And then he says, indeed, verse 4, indeed, let God be true. And this is a... um, this is the use of a third-person imperative here, uh, indicating that God should be demonstrated to be true, but every man a liar. That no matter what happens within human history, at the end, God is going to be demonstrated to be true to his word. He, it may appear at times, because we have a limited perspective, that God might have forgotten us. He's not listening to our prayers. He has uh, not seemed to have fulfilled his promise. And yet when we see things as they are, we'll realize that God has always been faithful and that man is the one that has been uh, unfaithful. This last uh, clause here is taken from Psalm 51, verse 4 in the Septuagint. So I put together this little comparison chart. The first part of the verse is not quoted and is not specifically relevant to what Paul is saying. He's taking the second part out, and he is using that or applying that to his particular argument. So it's not a direct um, uh, uh, statement that is uh, based on the argument of Psalm 51. He's just taking the principle that's there, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit and applying it to his circumstance. Now, if you note, there's a slight difference between the wording of Psalm 51.4 in the um, Masoretic text, as you have it translated, and Psalm 51.4 as Paul modifies it. Most of it comes out of the Septuagint, but there's a, quite a, there's a little difference at the end. Notice on the left column, we read that thou, that is addressing God, that thou might be justified when you speak and be clear, and the word there really means to be vindicated or victorious, when you judge, judgest or judge. So who's doing the judging here? It is God. But when you come to the statement of Paul that's in Romans, He says that you may be justified in your words and may overcome using the verb nikaio, which means to have victory, to overcome, to be vindicated or victorious, that you may be victorious. And then it's translated when you are judged because there's a shift to a passive voice, a middle middle passive voice there in the, um, uh, in, in the, in, Romans chapter, th- Romans chapter 3, you're vindicated when you are judged because what Paul is pointing out here and the way he just changes, shifts that last verb is to point out that when, even though mankind may ridicule God, may condemn God, may question God, at the end, 
God will be vindicated when uh, he is evaluated. He will always be true to his word, no matter what our experience might seem to indicate. There are times when we're so overwhelmed with some things in life that we think God has just forgotten us, and he's not answering our prayers. We claim promises, and to no, it seems to no effect. But at, when it's all is said and done, we will discover that God has always been true to his word, and um, because he cannot be anything different, he is always true to his own character. So then we come to verse 5. And in verse 5, Paul again um, lays down another objection. And this objection is related to the idea that, well, if our, if, if our sin reveals the righteousness of God, then, well, let's go sin some more. The more we sin, the more his righteousness will be revealed. And this is a, apparently was a common, uh, charge, as we see from this context, against uh, Paul and against his Christian. This is often the charge that gets brought among people who teach grace. How many times have you run into somebody who may have said, well, you just think you can just sin with impunity because all you have to do is confess your sin and you get forgiven and you're off scot-free. You're really licentious, and that was the idea. Paul is going to uh, come back to something similar to this again at the beginning of Romans chapter 6 when he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So that's twice within just a few chapters he repeats this same sort of uh, slander against Christians. So obviously this was something that was commonly raised uh, against believers at that time. So he says, but if our right unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, uh, what then shall we say? And uh, then he raises the next question, which uh, develops the argument even more. Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? The implication of the first statement would be that God would then be unjust by bringing any form of discipline or judgment upon the disobedient believer. But let's break it down a little bit. The first clause, or what's called the protesis, is a first-class condition in the Greek. That means it is assumed to be true. So he is stating a true principle, and that is that our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. Our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. When we sin, then God's righteousness is brought to the forefront. His righteousness is his absolute standard. And because God is righteous, he must condemn unrighteousness. So when mankind is unrighteous, God's righteousness comes into effect, and his justice has to bring judgment. So our unrighteousness does uh, bring forth, does display the righteousness of God. But that it is an invalid conclusion then to go on to say, well, then we must just continue to uh, sin so that his righteousness is made ever, uh, ever more present. So he phrases these questions, though, in a in a way that that indicates uh, the answer. He says, um, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? He says, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? No, that's the expected answer from the way he 
uh, phrases this uh, in the Greek. Now, man's unrighteousness, as I stated, shows God's righteous character, and that demonstrates God's own right to be the judge. And remember when he says in this last question, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? The wrath there is not a future judgment. He's not talking about the lake of fire. He's talking about judgment in time, judgment in history, either personal discipline on an individual or on a nation or on a group. And so when he says, uh, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? He's saying this. He says, well, I speak as a man. He wants to make sure his readers understand that he's using a human viewpoint uh, objection. Then he answers it. This is the second time he says this. Certainly not. This is an, an absurd, an irrational, an illogical conclusion. He said, "For if, if this were true, then how could God judge the world? And among Jews, it was very clear. Jewish theology made it very clear that that there was a future judgment, that God would judge the world. Passages such as Isaiah 66, 16, uh, Joel 3, 12, which talks about the judgment of the nations when God gathers them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, Psalm 94, 2, God is the judge of the world. And um, Daniel chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, speak of an end-time judgment where the, some will be resurrected to life, and some will be resurrected to death. So that was the belief among the Jews is that God would judge the world. And so what Paul has done here in a very logical manner is pointing out that God can't judge the world. You can sort of back backtrack this argument. God can't judge the world unless he's righteous. If God is righteous, then that is demonstrated in the context of human unrighteousness and it's a silly conclusion to think that by being more unrighteous, you can somehow increase the righteousness of God. But that was, that was the kind of objection that, objection that was often being raised and was often presented, um, uh, against in, in, in refutation of Paul. So then he moves on into verse, uh, as we go into verse six, and he says, for then how will, uh, God judge the world? And he goes then to verse 7 to explain that even further. He says, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? So this is a, is a continuation of the thinking of the objector. You know, the first part of his objection was uh, given in verse 5. Uh, the idea that uh, un- our unrighteousness would demonstrate the righteousness of God. And the second part of his uh, thinking is expressed here that if, the tr- if our lies uh, increase the truth of God, then why should he judge us? The whole point of this is to try to avoid God's judgment, just coming up with these uh, ir- irrational statements. And so what does Paul do? He says, well, if you're going to say that, Why not just say, I'm going to do evil that good may come? That's the essence of your argument. And Paul crystallizes what this objection is, is nothing more than an end justifies the means argument. An end justifies the means argument is nothing more than saying a right thing 
done in a wrong way is okay. It doesn't matter how you do it as long as you're, you're sincere, as long as your goal is correct, as long as you really want to do the right thing. It doesn't matter how many bad things are done in the process to achieve the goal. Uh, and it's very clear that ethically a right thing can only be done in a right way. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. But we live in an era today when people don't understand, at least the way they live, an end justifies the means problem. And you see this as displayed more and more with younger people because they think as a, in a purely pragmatic sense that as long as I get the right result, so it doesn't matter how I get it, I can cheat on an exam, I can, uh, I can lie, I can uh, uh, cover things up as long as it looks good, as long as I uh, come to the right, uh, the right end and make the right grade or whatever it might be. Now, verse 8, Paul just shows the uh, irrationality of this. He says, why not say, let us do evil that good may come? as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say. See, that's where we see that Paul, Paul's words have been twisted. His teaching on grace have been twisted into the the idea that he's teaching licentiousness. And he says, now we're slanderously reported that we're teaching this. And then he doesn't even refute it. It's so obvious. It is is, um, self-evident that the idea that we can do evil, that good may come, is wrong, that Paul doesn't even address it. He just says, anybody who thinks that way, well, their condemnation is just. Then he moves into the conclusion in verse 9. And he raises then these two questions. What then? What conclusion are we to arrive at? What is the result of this string of thinking? He says... What then? Are we, that is, Jews, better than they, that is, Gentiles? Remember, he started off back in verse uh, 17 of chapter 2, dealing with uh, the claims from the Jewish audience that they would be justified by God simply by their observance of the law as specifically seen in the observance of the ritual of circumcision. And now he has taken that and developed it logically to show that circumcision really wasn't the, I mean, the external act of circumcision wasn't the issue in the Old Testament, that again and again, as I pointed out, God said it's not a matter of the physical circumcision, but circumcision of the heart. And so the real issue is whether there has been a shift in the thinking in terms of obedience to God and uh, not uh, operating on arrogance. So in verse 9, Paul brings us to a conclusion and says, and he's going to conclude that Jewish people aren't inherently any better than, any, than Gentiles. Both are condemned. Jews had a privileged position, but it wasn't a privileged position that brought them salvation. So he says, what then? What is the implication of this argument? What is the conclusion? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. And the word translated under is the Greek word hupa, 
which has the sense of being under something, but in a variety of contexts it has the idea of being under the control or the dominion of something. And that's the idea, that all are under the control of sin. This is what Paul will develop further when he gets into Romans chapter 6. As he's talking about sanctification there, he talks about that prior to salvation, we have no choice but to sin. We are in bondage to sin. So uh, here he is saying that, that Jews and Greeks are all under sin. There is none who has uh, righteousness which measures up to God's righteousness. And then he's going to string together a series of verses from the Old Testament to substantiate that this isn't just something that he's come up with, but this is the teaching that you find in the Hebrew Scriptures. And you do find this again and again in the Old Testament. There is clearly the teaching that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul will summarize this when we get to verse 23. So now we come to this, the beginning of this string. It's introduced in Romans 3.10. And in Romans 3.10, he says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, what's that last line say? There is none who does good, no, not one. And as you see, and I put the parallel here because... Most of what he says in these three verses comes from uh, Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Now, if you look at verse 10, I did not underline that because there's nothing comparable on the other side. Where do you find a statement in the Old Testament that there is none righteous, no, not one? You will look in vain and you won't find it. But Paul says, as it is written. Now, how can that be? Well, what do we need to do in order to understand this? We have to go back, remember, many times that I've labored through the four ways the writers of the New Testament quote the Old Testament. Okay, I didn't put the slide up here, but the first way is literal prophecy is quoted as having literally been fulfilled. Micah 5.2 said that Jesus or the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and in Matthew chapter 2, uh, that's exactly where Jesus was born, was in Bethlehem. Then we have the passage that says uh, in Hosea 11 that out of uh, Egypt I called my son, and we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 2 at the end there when Jesus comes back with the family after they had fled at the time of the um, Herod's attempt to kill all the babies, all the infants. Uh, they, uh, Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt, and then they came back. But that was a different kind of usage. Uh, the event in Hosea refers to the historical event, and it's not prophetic at all, the historical event of, of, of Exodus of the Jews coming out of Egypt. But it is, it is taken and applied as a type, a picture of what would be fulfilled by the, by the Messiah. So there's a different usage of that formula. It is written. Then the third use uh, that we have that we found is when you have a historical event that doesn't quite match the fulfillment event, but there's one element that is similar. And what the writer of the New Testament is saying is that this event is like that that happened before. And the uh, example there is when the 
when Jeremiah uh, speaks of the uh, mothers of Israel, uh, mothers of Ramah, weeping for their children. And the original context of that statement was that the mothers of Ramah, which is located north of Jerusalem, were weeping as they saw their sons being led off into captivity to Babylon. But the context of, of Matthew chapter 2 is that the mothers in Bethlehem, which was south of Jerusalem, are weeping because their babies have been murdered by uh, King Herod. So there are many details that don't match up, but the one thing that is similar is the weeping of the mothers, and so it's a it's an application. But the one that I always find most interesting is that fourth use when uh, Matthew says in Matthew chapter 2 that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. They moved back, Mary and Joseph moved back to Nazareth so that it would be fulfilled that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene, except you don't have that anywhere in the Old Testament. But the term Nazarene, uh, Nazareth was just a little bitty town, kind of like, what is it, Paint Creek? Is that the name of it, where Rick Perry's from? Just a wide spot in the road. Uh, that's about what Nazareth was like. And uh, the people who lived in Judea had a rather low opinion of the intellectual capabilities of anyone up in Galilee. And Nazareth was up in the Galilee, and Nazareth was viewed as just you know the, the backwater, and nothing good could come out of uh, out of Nazareth, and so anyone who came from Nazareth would just had you know barely had a room temperature IQ. They were uh, they they didn't have any respect from anyone else in anyone down in Judea, and so it was sort of a proverbial statement that somebody if somebody wasn't real bright or if they were backward or if they didn't have a family tree that forked or you know various sayings like that. Uh, then they must have come from Nazareth. The, so it's a summary. Uh, in the Old Testament, it teaches that the Messiah would be uh, rejected, that he would be despised, that his people would not accept him. And so this is summarized by Matthew into the idea of, of um, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's no specific verse that states that, but the sense of various verses is summarized in that statement, he would be called a Nazarene. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul has done here in uh, chapter 3, verse 10. He has summarized the teaching of Psalm 14, 1 through 3. And he summarizes it in the statement, there is none righteous, no, not one. That is the summary of what he sees, not only taught in Psalm 14, but the first three verses of Psalm 14 are repeated verbatim in Psalm 53. And again and again, the Old Testament, you see it stressed that uh, man does not do good. Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The teaching of the Hebrew Scripture is that we do not do, mankind does not do righteousness. We are all unrighteous. So this is his summary. There is none righteous, no, not one. And then he begins to quote, uh, there is none who understands. There's no real in-depth spiritual understanding is what he's saying. Not a superficial intellectual understanding, but a, a profound, deep spiritual understanding. There's none who seeks uh, after God. In verse 11, and again, the Greek word 
that is used here, we'll come back and talk about this word more next time, but the Greek word here indicates a more intense seeking. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. And then uh, Psalm 14.3 ends, There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, this quote comes, this section comes out of Psalm 14, 1 through 3. So I think it's important for us to understand a couple of things about Psalm 14, 1 through 3 before we uh, complete our study of Romans 3, uh, 10 through 18. In verse 10, he says, there's none righteous, no, not one. That's not a comparable statement, as I said, that's just a summary statement. But in Psalm 14, 1, the introduction is the statement, the fool, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now let's think about that sentence just a little bit. The way I read it as a young person, so sometimes you misread something and you always think of it that way, is that first of all you have somebody who's a fool, and the result of their being foolish is that they, they do certain things. And one of the things that a foolish person will do is he will reject God. That's not what, the way this is, this really is intended. This, if you say there is no God, you are a fool. Doesn't matter what your IQ is. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have, how much education you have. Uh, doesn't matter, uh, what your intellectual accomplishments are. If you say that there is no God, you are a fool. Now, remember what Paul said in Romans, Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 21. He said, because after saying that God's attributes are clearly seen in his creation, he says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Unbelievers know internally, inherently, that God exists. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile or empty in their thinking, in their rational processes, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They may have an IQ that is higher than 200. They may have degrees from the most prestigious universities in the world. They may be, have a photographic memory. But if they reject the existence of God, they are a fool because they are living in a fantasy palace that they have created out of their own desire to live in a world where there is no God. So Psalm 14.1 is stating the qualifications to be a fool. A fool rejects God's revelation of himself in nature and in the word, in his creation and in the word. And the fool says, because he has rejected God, he says there is no God. Now, we go to the next uh, clause in Psalm 14.1, and it states, they are corrupt. Who are the they? Is that all mankind? No. It's the fool who has rejected God. So he's not talking about those who have exercised positive volition toward God and want to know more about God. He's talking about those who have exercised negative volition toward God and have rejected him completely and don't want to know anything about him. 
when you reject God, you have lost the basis for any kind of absolute system of morals or ethics. And the natural end result of that is pure moral relativism. You have no basis for it other than some sort of pragmatism. And it only works for you if, I mean, uh, an ethical system is, is yours only if it works for you. But as long as whenever something else comes along, then you are, are tempted to just go with another system because there's no external reference point, no external absolutes. So the fool has said in his heart, there are no God. Now, what characterizes people who have rejected God? They're corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none that does good. And then he goes on in verse 2 to say, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Now, the conclusion is that there are none who understand and none who seek God. The text does not say there are none who can understand and none who can seek God. There's a big difference. But the way Reformed theology and the way Calvinist theology reads this is to say there are none who can understand and that there are none who who can seek for God. And there's a huge difference between the two. All this verse is saying is that the uh, normal default position here is that they don't understand and they don't seek God. But we have to balance that with what Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 1, verse uh, uh, 20 and 21, that they know God. There is understanding of God and a knowledge of God at one level but at a profound level that affects the orientation of their soul, there is not um, that knowledge of God. There is not that understanding. And then we have to look at this second verb here, the word to seek God. And the Calvinists will say, see, no one seeks God, and they equate this to positive volition. See, see, the unbeliever, the Calvinists will say, doesn't, can't even exercise positive volition. You claim to that the person can either be positive or negative at God consciousness, and the Bible says that doesn't exist. There's no such thing as God consciousness. There's no such thing as positive volition. They can only see God if God gives them the ability to do that. That is their uh, that is their argument. Uh, but we'll see. Let's look at a few verses to see that that is not the case. That is not uh, what the Scripture teaches. Let's look, first of all, at um, Deuteronomy 4.29. Moses says, From there you will seek the Lord your God. Hmm, Wait a minute, I thought this was an absolute principle that no one seeks God. But Moses says, From there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. This is an expression of positive volition. 1 Chronicles 16.11 uh, this is uh, David. Seek the Lord. It's a command. How can you have a command to seek the Lord if you can't do it? This is a command to anyone who reads the psalm. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. First Chronicles 28.9, As for you, my son Solomon, who was a believer, the, uh, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts 
and understand all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. This is a universal principle here. If, if, if the, the clause that God searches all hearts, that's unbeliever and believer. He searches the heart to see if there's positive volition there. If you seek him, if someone has positive volition, he will be found uh, by you. You will find God. But if you forsake him, negative volition of God consciousness, he will cast you off forever. Second Chronicles 15.2, and he went out to meet Asa, and said to him, Hear me, Asa, this is the prophet uh, coming to Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. It's restating the same principle related to positive or negative volition. Psalm 105, 3 and 4, Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. That is your command. You can't have a command that's real unless the person who hears it can respond. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Isaiah reiterates this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. See, if the wicked and the unrighteous couldn't change, couldn't exercise positive volition, then this is meaningless. So the even the unregenerate can exercise positive volition because it is non-meritorious. It's not gaining him merit with God. Because he wants to know God, God then will provide the solution, and it is God who is the one who grants repentance and gives the blessing of salvation. God's the one who regenerates us. We simply exercise uh, non-meritorious faith in God's promise and salvation. That's the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That's grace. Jeremiah 19, 29, 12, and 13, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Again, that's positive volition. Uh, two more verses, or three more verses. Hosea 5.15, God said, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Amos 5, 4, and 6. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with no one to quench it. And Bethel, and finally Zechariah two three. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld His justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Seeking is not a universal negative. I mean, when Paul says there is none who seeks, this is not saying that no one, without exception, can have positive volition. It, it comes out of the context of Rome of uh, Psalm fourteen where it is talking about the characteristic of the person who says there is no God. So these statements that we find in Romans chapter 3 are not the statements that um, uh, Calvinism interprets them to be as universal statements of total inability. They are simply statements that express what is, not what must be. Understand the difference. This is that it's not that they can't seek after God; it's that they don't seek after God. It's not a denial of volition; it is rather a a, a statement 
of the results of their volition. We'll come back and develop the rest of this next time. Father, thank you for this time together as we work through these verses and these quotations from the Old Testament. Uh, just reinforces that we are incapable of doing anything on our own to um, earn your blessing, that you must do everything, and that you have done that in Jesus Christ. And when we believe in him, you give us his righteousness. You credit that to our account, and it's on that basis that you justify us, not on the basis of what we do. We don't regenerate ourselves. We simply accept a gift And on that basis, you regenerate us and you justify us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.